Hello and welcome to the Village Church Podcast. My name is John and we are glad to have you join us. We work to deliver our most recent preaching content to you as soon as possible, so let's get into God's Word together. This morning we find ourselves returning to the book of Galatians. For those who are new and haven't been with us, we have been working through Paul's letter to the Galatian churches verse by verse, uh, chapter by chapter, uh, on those Sundays when I preached the Word. Uh, And we've been slowly but surely doing that for about a year now. Um, In this series through the book of Galatians, I've been using a, a very simple statement to describe the main theme, the overarching theme of the book of Galatians, and it's this. God's people are justified by grace through faith in Christ alone and not by their works or obedience to the law. Put simply, it is Christ's works, not our works. The Apostle Paul uh, has a central point in this letter to the Galatians. He's writing to multiple churches, not the church at Galatia, but the churches in the region of Galatia. And his central point is that they do not need to be circumcised according to the Mosaic law in order to belong to the people of God through the family line of Abraham. You see, the Galatians were Gentiles. What that means simply is that they were not Jews by birth, And after their coming to faith in Christ, uh, and a church was established there, and this occurred actually through the Apostle Paul and his missionary journeys through there, after he left and these churches were established, the Galatians were being led astray by false teachers who were instructing them that they still had to be circumcised, they still had to obey the law, even with faith in Jesus. Those things still had to take place. Brothers and sisters, that is wrong. We do not have to be circumcised as a condition of faith in Christ. So Paul's letter to the churches in Galatia is a rebuke to those who are turning to this false gospel. And it's also an admonishment to them to return to the true gospel, which is by grace through faith. When we were last in this book some time ago, uh, we made it through verse 14 of chapter 3. And today we will pick up... um, in chapter 3 again, uh, let's quickly consider what we've examined in the first half of chapter 3 as we uh, get back on page here in our text. So Paul begins chapter 3 with strong words, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? And he goes on to talk about um, their salvation experience. He's pointing out the utter foolishness of their turning from living by faith in Christ and instead being saved by faith and then turning to works. In verse 3, Paul asks the Galatians if they, having begun by trusting Christ, now think they're being perfected by their works, by their actions. If you've been saved that way, do you think somehow you're being improved upon the work of Christ by your actions? It's a rhetorical question, but Paul is asking it with a stinging reality to shame them and bring them back. 
No, we know that all of salvation is God's work, and man contributes nothing good to it. The only thing that man contributes to his salvation is the need for it. Philippians chapter 1, verse 6 confirms this. It states, And I am sure of this, that he who has began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ. He started it. He will finish it. We do not contribute anything to our salvation. As we continue our review of the first half of chapter 3, in verses 6 through 9, Paul then brings mention of the blessing of Abraham. Abraham was a man that God made a covenant with, that he would bless Abraham, and through Abraham's offspring, that all nations of the earth would be blessed. Paul reminds his Galatian readers that even Abraham was not counted righteous through obedience or through his actions. No, what does verse 6 of Galatians 3 say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. He believed God, and that was counted as righteousness. Just as Abraham believed and was counted righteous by his faith and not by his works, so too shall all who are saved be saved by faith and not actions. Paul points out that the covenant God made with Abraham extends to all nations, to the Gentiles, to those who are not of the Jewish faith. And finally, in review here, Paul says that in verses 10 through 14, he spoke about the curse of the law and the redemption from that that is in Christ. Paul states, for all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. And again, he says, now it is evident that no one, no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. Paul is saying that in trying to obtain the blessing of God by obedience to the law, the result is and can only be a curse because no man can perfectly keep God's law. And if you cannot perfectly keep it, James chapter 2, verse 10 makes it very clear. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. Paul's point, quite simply, is this. Only Christ can redeem man from the curse of the law. He did this by becoming a curse for us. One commentator put it this way, and I really liked the way uh, it was said. The curse of the law is removed only by the cross of Christ. And thus, here it is, faith is the pathway to blessing. Faith is the pathway to blessing. I've titled today's sermon, A Covenant Previously established. A covenant previously established. Our text this morning is Galatians chapter 3, verses 15 through 22. Please open your Bibles, if you would, to Galatians chapter 3. Again, our text today is Galatians 3, 15 through 22. Would you please join me as we read God's inerrant, infallible, and inspired word 
starting in verse 15, to give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. And does not, it does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God, so as to make the promise void. For, for if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by the promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions, until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. That is our text today. Would you join me in prayer? Most gracious Heavenly Father, as we come now to the preaching of your word, God, Father, I ask that you would speak through me, that you would use this weak vessel to glorify you, to teach your people. Father, guard my tongue, guard my words as I speak. Let them be honoring to you, God. Let only that which is true be remembered in this place, God. We exist for you. We ask that you be with us, that you help us to apply your word, God, this day, that all would be done to your praise and to your glory. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. So in the previous section of Scripture, the Apostle Paul has been speaking about two things. The Abrahamic covenant versus the Mosaic law, the promise and the law, obedience and faith. And in our text today, the Apostle Paul is now giving an illustration of the things that he's been talking about, the Mosaic law and uh, the, the covenant. So right off the, the bat here, verse 15, to give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it's been ratified. The very first thing I want to point out in this first verse is let us note that there's a change in tone from Paul. At the beginning of this chapter, he is sternly rebuking the Galatians. You foolish Galatians! In the opening chapter, he says that anyone who does not follow the true gospel is damned. Very strong and fiery language that the Apostle Paul uses. It's often been said that Galatians is Paul's most fiery gospel. It's the only one that doesn't have a, a kind introduction to my beloved. He is quite fiery. But here in this opening verse, we now see a term of endearment and compassion. What does he say? He no longer calls them foolish Galatians. He calls them brothers. 
amidst his stern rebuke and his admonishment to those who are turning from truth, he still calls upon them as brethren whom he loves and which he desires, who he desires to see return to the true faith. And Paul is making a point about man-made covenants. He's using a human illustration here. Even man-made covenants, not covenants between God and man, but simply a covenant made from a man to a man. They are not annulled. Annulled simply is a word for a agreement being dissolved or voided. Even a man-made covenant is not dissolved or voided once it's been ratified, meaning once it's been made valid and legal, once it has been put in place. Why is Paul giving a human illustration? If man-made covenants cannot be easily dissolved, can God's? How much more irrevocable are the covenants made by God than the covenants made by man? And we're talking about a covenant that God made. Well, why can't God's covenants be changed? Well, let's look at a few simple scripture verses. Malachi 3.6, what does it say? For I am the Lord, I do not change, therefore are you children of Jacob are not consumed. God does not change. James 1.17 says, Every good gift, every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. God in his word is clear. He doesn't change. His being, his perfections, his purposes, his will does not change. Therefore, neither should we think that his covenants change either. One of God's many attributes is that he is immutable. That simply means he is unchanging. So as we talk about this covenant, it's worth noting that in this context, in the original language it was written, which the New Testament, by and large, was written in Greek, The word for covenant here really more closely aligns uh, with a covenant being not just an agreement, which if I were to survey the room and say, what is a covenant? You would probably say, well, it's an agreement, it's a promise, uh, it's a transaction between two parties. And you're not wrong to say that. that. That is in part correct. But if we dig deeply into the meaning of this word, here in our text, it actually means Uh, what we would probably think of more as, well, the the best analogy I could give would be like a last will and testament. Philip Graham Ryken, in his commentary, uh, describes this part of the text this way, uh, and I will quote it. Uh, A will is not a contract. It does not set terms that various parties are obligated to fulfill. Instead, it simply declares what one party intends to do. A will and testament, even man-made ones, are not easily annulled or broken. How often have we seen this? Just look at the uh, interesting stories we hear on the news of some rich person uh, passing away and leaving their family fortune, not to their family, but to a charity. Or I think the most recent one I saw was that some wealthy person over in Europe left their family fortune to their dog. 
family is left out of it. And they can attempt to, the children can attempt to fight that in a court. But once the will has been ratified, once it has been legally set, the canine gets the mansion and the millions, not the children. Because that is how a will and testament, a covenant works. Once it is set, it is set. It doesn't get to be changed. Once it is ratified, it stands. What a fitting example that is as we look at the Abrahamic covenant by God. God promised it to Abraham. God's promise to Abraham in this covenant was not conditional. When God said, I will make you a great nation, it wasn't conditional on Abraham doing something. It was unilateral. It was irrevocable and eternal. It didn't have conditions. Well, Abraham, do this. Abraham, do that. God did not say, Abraham, if you do this, then I'm going to do that. The eternal God without beginning or end, who does not change, said, Abraham, I will do this. I will make you exceedingly fruitful. I will make you into nations, and kings will come from you. I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring. Your offspring will be like the sand on the seashore. Your offspring will be like the stars. The Lord declared this covenant He did not tell Abraham that he would do it if this, if that. This is Paul's point. If man-made covenants are not annulled, it would be foolish to think that God's covenants can be. In verse 16, Paul says, Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. He does not say offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and your offspring, who is Christ. Again, we're still looking at the Abrahamic covenant. Let us consider some of the words of the covenant that God made. In Genesis chapter 15, verse 5, the Lord says, Look towards heaven and number the stars, if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. Similarly, in Genesis 22, 17, the Lord again says to Abraham, I will surely bless you. And I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. We cannot point to just one specific text when we look at the Abrahamic covenant. Uh, It occurs beginning in about Genesis chapter 12 and continues through about Genesis chapter 46. There are many mentions of it where God speaks to Abraham and his descendants. God says that Abraham's offspring will be like the number of stars in the sand of the shore. Uncountable. Uh, You can do a web search and try to find out how many stars there are, and scientists can't seem to agree. It's billions of trillions and numbers that you almost cannot speak. God says that is the offspring of Abraham. And yet in Galatians 3.16, Paul says the promise of Abraham was not made to the many offsprings of Abraham, though he will have this many descendants, but it was made to his offspring, of whom Jesus is the greatest. Remember, though, not biologically the son of Joseph, Jesus was legally Joseph's son. He was of the house and the lineage of David, who is a descendant of Abraham. 
The word offspring here in the text is what is known as a collective noun. It means a couple things. It can mean a single individual. It can mean a group of individuals. But it also can mean both of those things at the same time. So when we look at the Abrahamic covenant, we have to look at it like that. Uh, We know simply by reading uh, the book of Genesis that the covenant with Abraham meant a son, Isaac, who would be born to Abraham and his wife Sarah in their old age. But this word offspring doesn't just mean that. Yes, it means he would have a son. She who uh, was barren would not be barren. But it means more than that. Offspring here also refers to all those who would be under the covenant, saved by the promise through faith. But it means even more than that. It points to God's Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, the true and better Adam. He is the true offspring which this covenant speaks of. The Abrahamic covenant was and is all about Jesus Christ. God's promise to Abraham was and is a gospel proclamation about the good news of Jesus because it is through Jesus and Jesus alone that the covenant promise is ultimately fulfilled. Let's look at a few more places in the Abrahamic covenant. In Genesis 12, 3, God says, In you, Abraham, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. It's a reference to Christ the Lord. He Jesus is the reason that all families will be blessed because a Savior has come. Again, in Genesis 26, 4, God says, in, you, your, in your offspring, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ which blesses people of every nation as the good news goes forth to every tribe, every tongue, every nation. The scripture says how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. We see that all the way from the Abrahamic covenant. First and foremost, the promises made to Abraham are made to Christ. And then in Christ, they apply to all who believe him. In our text today, in the 17th verse, it says, This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterwards, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. Paul makes the point that the Mosaic law came 430 years after the Abrahamic promise. Now, if we count from the very first mention of the Abrahamic promise, remember, I said there are multiple places throughout Genesis where we learn about the Abrahamic covenant. But if we count from the very first mention of the Abrahamic covenant in Genesis 12, it's actually about 645 years later that we have uh, the Mosaic law established on Mount Sinai. But If we look to the last time God speaks again and reaffirms the Abrahamic covenant, it's in Genesis 46. Not to Abraham. Anybody know who it's to? Genesis 46 is not to Abraham. It's to his grandson, Jacob. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. 
right before he and his family go into Egypt. That's 430 years from when the Mosaic Law was given to the people of Israel after they leave Egypt and are on the, the mountain, uh, next to the mountain at Sinai, and they receive the law. 430 years. So the Abrahamic covenant, and then all those years later is the law. So why is Paul making such a big deal about this? Why is he pointing out that the Abrahamic covenant was here and then the law was all these years later? Let us consider the context here. We talked about this earlier, but Paul, he's writing because uh, he is opposing these false teachers who've snuck into the churches in Galatia, uh, known as Judaizers. Uh, And these uh, men were trying to say that the law still applied, right? And you had to obey the law. But Paul's reminding the Galatians that God's covenant is not void. And that the new law, the Mosaic law, does not replace the old covenant that was already established. Why is Paul saying this? Well, it's very likely that these false teachers would probably use a line like this. The Old Testament law still applies. You have to do these things. And since the Mosaic law is newer than the Abrahamic covenant, that's the one you go with. But that's not true. The apostle Paul dismisses that argument before it is even attempted by them. The covenant is not void. God's covenant with Abraham still stands because it was ratified. It was made legal and valid. And if it is valid, then it still stands and the law does not replace it. That's the point Paul is making here. And then in verse 18, Paul emphasizes that the law and the covenant promise are mutually exclusive meaning it's one or the other. It cannot be both. What does Paul say in verse 18? For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by the promise, otherwise known as the covenant promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Either you will live by the law and you will die by it, for no man can keep it perfectly. Or you will be made right and righteous by faith through the promise of Jesus, like Abraham was made righteous because he believed God. It's faith or works. It's not both. Better stated, it's your works or Christ's works. Perhaps you're sitting here today and saying, well, if the Abrahamic covenant still applies, and it's always applied since it was given, Why the law? If it's always been the covenant of grace, then why was the law introduced? Doesn't it seem kind of pointless that the law would have been introduced 430 years later if it is by the covenant? It's a good question. Paul is going to address it in a minute. Because God does not change. We know that. So it's not like God uh, decided to roll out a covenant and then said, you know what, I'm going to roll out the law instead. Uh, actually, no, never mind, let's stick with law. No, God doesn't change his mind. So why did, why did God roll out the law? Why did God give the law? The Apostle Paul says this in verse 19. Why then the law? 
it was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. The law was added because of transgressions. Transgression means a sin. What is sin? Sin is any transgression of the law of God. So Paul asks, so why the law? Why the law? Because through the law, man's sin is revealed. And man is made aware of how hopelessly sinful he is. Dear ones, I hope you realize this. I hope you understand that the law was never intended to save man because the only thing the law does is reveal our wretched sinfulness and reveal man's need for a savior. We can't keep it. And that's the point. The law reveals your need for Christ, my need for Christ. It heightens our awareness of sin and quickens us to see our spiritual bankruptcy in God's economy. Man must know his desperate state so that he may cry out to God and find mercy through grace received in faith through the promise of Christ. This is why Paul said the law was added until the offspring, that is Christ, should come. We must know the bad news revealed through the law before we can be made to know and to understand and to realize the good news of the promise by faith. Why the law? Paul says this in Romans chapter 3, verse 20. Through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Why the law? Paul keeps answering this in Romans 7, 7. He says this about the law. If it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. The law brings knowledge of sin. It tells us what sin is. There was certainly sin in the world before the law was given, but the law helps us to see our sin. By the law, we are made painfully aware of our fatal, sinful state. Brothers and sisters, that is the law's purpose. Paul also mentions that an intermediary applies to more than one, but that God is one in verse 20. Since the Abrahamic covenant is an unconditional promise, right? It is not dependent on any action by Abraham, no intermediary is needed, right? This, this covenant is not this party and this party agreeing to something. No, this was God saying, I'm doing this, Abraham. He didn't ask Abraham for his opinion. God said, I am doing this. I will bless you. So Paul says that God is ratifying that covenant on his own. While most covenants would require an intermediary, this one does not need it. God is one. God did it because God said, I will do it. I didn't, he didn't ask Abraham. He told Abraham. Now, Paul asks, I love the way Paul asks many um, 
almost rhetorical questions in his writing. Verse 21 of our text, Paul says, Is the law then contrary to the promise of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. Here the Apostle Paul is asking a variation of a question he has asked already in this text. Back in verse 19, he asked the question, Why the law? Why the law? And here in verse 21, he asks then, Is the law contrary to the promise of God? Is the law opposed to the promises of God? Do these things work against each other? If the covenant, the promise, is by faith, it's by believing, and the law is by obeying, it seems like these two are polar opposites, right? So Paul asks this kind of rhetorical question. Does the law, is the law contrary? Does it contradict the promise? If the law is by man's works and man cannot keep it, it is not opposed to the covenant promises of faith, isn't it? Shouldn't it be? It seems so different. But Paul here uses a very strong negative. What's he say? He says, certainly not. Uh, this is, in the Greek language, what is known as a, uh, as a strong negative. It's oftentimes translated, certainly not. Sometimes it's translated, by no means. And in the original language, uh, what it really means is, God forbid. So when Paul asks, is the law then contrary to the promises of God? By no means. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? God forbid. No, it's not. Dear ones, the law is not contrary to the promises of God. As we read earlier, the law works in harmony with the promise of God, according to God's will. How does it work in harmony? Because the law reveals our sin. It makes us aware, helps us to more clearly see our need for salvation through the promise that is freely given by faith in Jesus. Abraham believed by faith and it was credited as righteousness. Paul says that if the law could have provided a way for man to be made righteous, then righteousness would be by the law. The father would not have had to send the son to die in the place of sinful man if there was a less costly way. If righteousness could be achieved by the law, would the Son of God have condescended to earth to live a sinless life, to die in the place of sinners, to pay a price that he did not owe? No, there was no other way. The gift of salvation through Christ is the most precious, priceless, and perfect gift ever given. If there had been another way, God would have done it. Our final verse today is verse 22. What does it say? But the scriptures imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Imprisoned. All of mankind is confined, is trapped, is imprisoned under sin. Because of Adam's sin in the garden, all of mankind is born broken, sinful, and under a curse. 
Even the psalmist says, in iniquity was I conceived. So why the law? That has been our question. The law helps man to be thoroughly convinced of his utter sinfulness, seeing it with great clarity so that the promise that is given to all who by faith believe it is given by the covenant that was already established, the Abrahamic covenant. It is not annulled. It is not made void by the law that came afterwards. It still stands. The covenant came. It promised the gospel. The law came to help man see their sinfulness and their need to believe by faith because we cannot by action, we cannot by works be made righteous. That is the purpose that the law has. It didn't replace God's promise. It is the spectacles by which we better see the problem. This morning, as we come to the end of our text, simply I only have one application question for us to consider, just one, and it is this. Do you live under the curse of the law or do you live according to the promise that is by faith? The law does not exist to set a bar for man to try harder, do better, work to improve, be less sinful, accomplish this if you want to live, be more diligent in your efforts to keep all these rules That's not the purpose of the law. That's been our main point today. The law was given to awaken you from your sinful slumber and to pry your sleepy, crusted eyes open to your, to my very great sin. That's the purpose. But do not simply stand there under the law in agony and despair. Humbly view yourself rightly by looking in the mirror of the law and seeing what you really are, a lawbreaker. And then run to Jesus Christ, who alone can save you from the curse of the law that we are all under and can cause you to walk in righteousness through him. I leave you with this question, have you done that are you still under the curse and the condemnation of the law, hopeless? Or are you living by faith through the promise of Jesus today? It is one of those two, dear ones in this room. Either you are saved by faith or you are wrestling against a law that you can never achieve. But Christ achieved it perfectly. He lived sinless. He is the only one. Today, you find yourself under the law, realizing now more clearly, I pray and I hope, that you are hopeless under the law and in need of a Savior. I would love to talk with you after service. Pastor John White, I know, would love to talk with you. Anyone with a green lanyard ear that is on today would love to speak with you to help you to understand. Trust 
Christ today by faith. It is not by your works. It's never been by works that man has been saved, but only by faith in Christ. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would help us to apply your word rightly. God, as we consider your beautiful word, God, as we see that the law helps us to see our need for you, to realize that we are hopeless without what Christ has done, without his perfect life lived in our place by which we can be made righteous. God, help us today. I pray that you, by your spirit, would convict hearts. God, that you would help the Christian in this room to not feel condemnation under the law if they are in Christ, but to trust in the wonderful work that your son did. God, for the unbeliever in this room, I pray that you would draw them to more rightly understand their need to be made right with you, God. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this time as we prepare our hearts to observe the Lord's Supper. Please be with us in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for joining us this week. If you have any questions about anything you just heard or if we can pray for you, please contact us at info at Until next time, stay in God's word.